and welcome to the Forbcast, the leading podcast on freedom of religion or belief, presented by Bellwether International. I'm your host, Brenna Christian Server. Welcome to episode five. Let's get started. This week, I wanted to talk about one of Bellwether's pillars, which is gender equality. Straight from Bellwether's website, religious and belief systems have incredible potential to close the gender gap and provide equal opportunity, advocacy against gender-based violence, and inclusivity. Here's some information on gender equality just on a general scale. Available data suggests that throughout the world, in the first decade of life, usually between zero and nine years, gender disparities are relatively small particularly in early childhood. In about half of the countries with available data, girls and boys are equally likely to be developmentally on track at three and four years old, while in the remaining countries the gender gap in developmental status is relatively small and to the advantage of girls. And in most countries, girls and boys are at about equal risk of experiencing violent punishment by caregivers in the home. However, significant gender differences persist in some domains and in certain countries. For example, though girls and boys face similar challenges in early childhood, gender disparities become more pronounced in adolescence, usually around age 10 and on to 19 years old. This is a crucial period when boys' and girls' attitudes about gender develop and when gender norms are usually solidified. In many places, the onset of puberty is a signal for constraining girls' movement, schooling, friendships, sexuality, and life exposure. Adolescent girls, due to expected gender roles, may also face a disproportionate burden of domestic work, expectations to be married, risks of early pregnancy, as well as sexual and gender-based violence. Here are some statistics. Worldwide, girls between the age of 5 and 9 will spend 30% more time on household chores than boys of the same age, while girls between the age of 10 and 14 will spend more than 50% more of their time, respectively, on household chores than boys of that same age group. One in every 20 adolescent girls between the age of 15 and 19 have experienced forced sex. This is around 13 million girls worldwide. Around one in three girls between the ages of 15 and 19 today have undergone female genital mutilation in the 30 countries where it is concentrated. In 2015, maternal health conditions such as hemorrhages, sepsis, or obstructed labor were the leading cause of death among girls between the ages of 15 to 19 years old. These are very troubling statistics. As boys transition into adolescence, they also face distinct risk factors due to gender socialization. Constructs of masculinity that encourage physical aggression, emotional stoicism, and sexual promiscuity heighten boys' risk-taking, often jeopardizing their physical health and well-being. For example, globally, the homicide rate is four times higher among adolescent boys between the ages of 10 to 19 than among girls of the same age. And adolescent boys are three times more likely than adolescent girls to engage in harmful alcohol consumption, increasing their risk of road injuries, non-communicable diseases, and interpersonal violence. To survive and to thrive, all children, no matter how old they are, 
or what gender they are, require quality care and support. This care and support can be substantially improved by fostering gender equality in adulthood and by reducing the gender-related barriers that contribute negatively to the well-being and rights of children. These barriers range from women's and girls' unequal access to resources, education, information, and technology, also stretching to a lack of safety, mobility, and decision-making, as well as gender norms that predecide both women's and men's roles and opportunities. For example, in most countries with available time-use data, women do more unpaid work, including domestic and care work, than men. This limits women's ability to enter and progress in the labor market. If we look at the labor market within the religious community specifically, the number of female employees currently working at the Vatican, for example, is on the rise. However, women still struggle for power within Catholicism in general. Pope Francis currently employs 1,016 women, representing 22% of the Holy See's total workforce. By comparison, Pope Benedict had 17% of the total workforce as women. Initially, Pope Francis had created a commission to study the possibility of making women deacons, something he has decided not to act upon earlier in the year 2020. The Pope's decision was the latest example of a long-standing tension between women and the male power structure of the Catholic Church. It's something that dates back to the very start of the Church's history. I also wanted to look at women's participation in religious world conferences. The 10th annual Religions for Peace World Assembly in 2019 was held in a town in southern Germany called Lindau, and a fourth of all participants there were women. Even the Vatican sent a female delegate from Caritas International. But while there were more female attendants than at any previous summit, many still bemoaned a lack of gender equality there. Maretzia Labidi Maiza, who served as the first vice president of the Constituent Assembly of Tunisia, said, quote, We hope that more women will belong to the next World Council. Women need to become more visible at all our events. End quote. She was one of the many outspoken female participants demanding that women have a greater say. Another example at the same conference was Leila al who was imprisoned in Iraq for 10 years during Saddam Hussein's dictatorship. She later became an MP in the country's parliament. She said, quote, We want more women to get involved. End quote. Another example in the world was from UN Special Reporter on Freedom of Religion or Belief, Dr. Ahmed Shahid, who convened a series of regional workshops to discuss strategies to advance the human rights of women and sexual orientation and gender identity minorities, which I will be referring to as SOGI moving forward, while also protecting the right to freedom of religion or belief. The convenings were comprised of UN actors, as well as civil society, faith or belief-based actors, and other stakeholders. Participants engaged in robust discussion and submitted information about laws, policies, and activities affecting the right to freedom of religion or belief for women, girls, and SOGI minorities, as well as information about the intersection of freedom of religion or belief and other rights. 
Countries in the Americas have been experiencing an ongoing process of secularization for decades. However, religious institutions and rhetoric still permeate the political discourse, particularly when it comes to issues of gender and sexual orientation. In some places, religious precepts are being passed as outright laws that violate the rights of women and SOGI minorities. In others, religious groups and individuals are using their right to freedom of religion to impede the basic rights of others. This is becoming an increasing challenge for groups and organizations that work on protecting women's rights and the rights of SOGI minorities. This clash is not between religion and gender equality, but between practices that perpetuate discrimination and the universal rights to non-discrimination. During these convenings, there was a repeated emphasis that international conventions protect the right to freedom of religion or belief, but do not protect religions, for example, religious traditions or values, identities, and truth claims. Human rights instead protect people as individuals and in community with others. Put differently, freedom of religion, as all other human rights, applies to humans. It is important to emphasize that women's rights and SOGI rights are not new rights and don't conflict with the rights of individuals to their beliefs and to practicing their religion. I'm now going to read some paragraphs from the UN Women Religion and Gender Equality Report. Despite legislative, social, and economic gains for women, no country has achieved gender equality. No country provides the same opportunities to its girls and women as it does to boys and men. As the nations of the world embark on the ambitious task of implementing Agenda 2030, an unprecedented body of resources, both human and material, will be needed to see it through. The relationship between religion and gender equality is a complex one. Religion plays a vital role in shaping cultural, social, economic, and political norms in many parts of the world. Similarly, gender roles and the status of women and men in society are deeply tied to the manner in which religious texts have been interpreted for centuries by those in positions of authority, positions held predominantly by men. Yet, in sharp contrast to their marked absence at the highest levels of decision-making in religious communities, women play a pivotal role in religious life. Within the family and the community, they implement and embody religious teachings and traditions and pass these on to future generations. With its focus on full and timely implementation of the gender equality agenda, UN Women is engaging critical partners across all sectors of society, including youth, men and boys, academics, and the media. It is also engaging faith-based organizations, institutions, and actors, building on a record of fruitful collaboration between these actors and UN agencies over the past two decades. This collaboration is rooted in the understanding that in today's world, where 8 out of 10 people identify as members of a religious or spiritual community, religion exerts a tremendous influence on women's and men's identity, behavior, and beliefs. Faith-based organizations are among the oldest providers of social and humanitarian assistance, with networks and resources reaching every corner of the globe. Notwithstanding their long history and impressive record, 
faith-based actors have not yet succeeded in challenging the patriarchal structures, beliefs, and practices that have perpetuated inequality and discrimination against women and girls. While they have promoted spiritual, social, and physical well-being, faith-based actors have not always fully engaged in the work of structural transformation required to secure equity and justice for all. These are the advocacy strategies put forth by the report by UN Women. There is a wide recognition that civil society will drive the change needed to shift attitude, policy, and practice in the direction of gender equality. Efforts to influence intergovernmental processes and targeted advocacy will need to address local, national, and international level normative discourse, as well as implementation measures. Faith actors will need to interrogate existing power structures and address barriers to gender equality, including poverty, unpaid care work, unequal pay, and social marginalization. Harriet Olson, who is the General Secretary of United Methodist Women, said, quote, All of our work has a long way to go. How then do we allow the giftedness of both perspectives to come to the table, aware of the history and the scope of the work on both sides? End quote. This document puts forth seven recommendations to achieving gender equality. Recommendation one identify, document, and disseminate the work of feminist faith organizations, institutions, and actors who are successfully challenging patriarchal norms and ideologies and are generating new interpretations of religious beliefs that support the equality of women and men. Recommendation 2. Support knowledge creation and cross-fertilization by bringing together feminist faith actors with secular women's and social justice organizations to share insights from their experience of challenging patriarchal norms within cultures and legal frameworks. Recommendation 3. Support the integration of efforts on critical aspects of the gender equality agenda by facilitating dialogue and collaboration between feminist faith actors and diverse constituencies, and by creating opportunities for global, regional, and national secular faith collaboration. Recommendation 4. Strengthen the capacity of feminist faith actors to translate their insights and experience into policy recommendations that respond to political contexts and realities. Support the unique contributions of faith-based youth advocates for gender equality, noting their particular strengths in intergenerational and multi-sectoral coalition building, as well as their innovative and effective use of social media. Recommendation 5. Build the capacity of feminist faith actors to influence key UN processes, such as the Human Rights Council, CEDAW, the High-Level Political Forum, and the Universal Periodic Review. Support feminist faith actors to build stronger progressive relationships with member states and to collaborate with civil society constituencies in the UN spaces and beyond. Recommendation 6. Convene an official side event during annual sessions of the UN Commission on the Status of Women to share and reflect on efforts and accomplishments of faith-based actors in the gender-responsive implementation of Agenda 2030. Recommendation 7. 
Create a female religious leadership platform representative of diverse faith traditions and geographic regions, and one that demonstrates a commitment to the promotion of gender equality. Support the efforts of feminist faith leaders and activists to engage efficiently with traditional and online media. Of course, while the focus of today's episode has been on religious communities and ideologies, This does not mean it's their sole responsibility to close the gender equality gap. We need governments, secular community action groups, and everyday people in their everyday lives to commit to understanding and furthering gender equality. I wanted to finish today's episode by telling you about some incredible women who are out there making a difference in the interfaith community, who are progressing freedom of religion or belief in their everyday lives through the work that they are doing. They're incredibly inspiring. I think they're amazing. I'm just going to give a little blurb about each one. So if you're interested, go look them all up. I want to be like every single one of them. First up is Dr. Sakena Yakubi. She's the founder of the Afghan Institute of Learning, the Professor Sakena Yakubi Private Hospital in Herat, and the Professor Sakena Yakubi Private High School in Kabul and Herat, Afghanistan. Dr. Yakubi once said, quote, I really believe that Islam says that education is a must for both men and women. The Quran tells us to be good. And educations give you critical thinking skills that are essential for ethical decision-making. End quote. Next is Diana Eck, who is a professor of comparative religion at Harvard Divinity School and the director of the Pluralism Project, a resource that explores and interprets the religious dimensions of America's new immigration. Professor Eck received the National Humanities Award from President Clinton and the National Endowment for the Humanities in 1998. Next is Dr. Ingrid Matson, who is the London and Windsor Community Chair in Islamic Studies at the University of Western Ontario in London, England. She founded the Islamic Chaplaincy Program and was the former director of the McDonald Center for Islamic Studies and Christian-Muslim Relations at Hartford Seminary in Hartford, Connecticut. Reverend Sally Bingham is the founder and president of Interfaith Power and Light, an organization that does faith-based environmental advocacy. In 2014, she was appointed to the White House Panel on Environmental Stewardship and Climate Change, She serves as canon for the environment in the Episcopal Diocese of California. Daisy Kahn is the executive director of the American Society for Muslim Advancement, a New York-based nonprofit that works to build bridges between Muslims and the general public. She's launched two flagship programs, the Muslim Leaders of Tomorrow and Women's Islamic Initiative in Spirituality and Equality, Global Movements to Empower Muslim Youth and Women. Last but certainly not least on our list is Reverend Elizabeth A. Eaton, who is the fourth presiding bishop of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in the United States and the denomination's first female presiding bishop. She previously served as the bishop of the ELCA Northeastern Ohio Synod and is a board member of Trinity Lutheran Seminary and Capital University. 
all of these powerhouse women are just a few examples of the incredible leaders that are closing the gender equality gap. Thank you so much for listening today. Thank you so much to all the sources that helped me out for the research for this week. You can go read all of the sources. I'm going to put the links for those in our show notes. I invite you to take a special look at how gender equality intersects with your beliefs, with your religion, with your faith system. And while you're at it, please send this episode to somebody who you think would find it interesting. Send it to somebody who also believes in gender equality. Send it to the most amazing woman you know. Please rate, review, subscribe. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. You can leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. You can also send me an email with any comments, questions, or corrections. My email address is brenna at bellwethernngo.org. That's B-R-E-N-N-A at bellwethernngo.org. Thank you so much for listening and tune in next week for another episode of The Forbcast. Thank you.